Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Fire Exit user John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> On today's show, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins to talk about whether Democrats will join Matt Gaetz's plan to oust Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. Donald Trump is in court for his fraud trial, making all kinds of threats. Joe Biden is framing the 2024 election as extremism versus democracy. And Gavin Newsom appoints LaFonza Butler as California's newest senator. But first... Congress has averted a government shutdown for now because Kevin McCarthy caved to Democrats at the last possible minute. 126 House Republicans joined 209 of their Democratic colleagues to keep the government funded at current spending levels for the next 45 days. Donald Trump and most Republicans had been demanding huge cuts to everything from health care to education, more immigration restrictions and all kinds of other crazy stuff. They got none of that though they were able to keep additional funding for Ukraine out of the deal, at least for now. President Biden said he's confident the Ukraine aid will pass and told Republicans to pass the full budget deal they agreed to last summer. Stop playing games. Get this done. I'm sick and tired of the brinksmanship. And so are the American people. I've been doing this, you all point out to me a lot, a long time. I've never quite seen a Republican Congress or any Congress act like this. Enough is enough is enough. This is not that complicated. The brinkmanship has to end. There's no excuse for another crisis. Consequently, I strongly urge my Republican friends in Congress not to wait. Don't waste time as you did all summer. Pass a year-long budget agreement. Honor the deal we made a few months ago. Joe's angry. Yeah, I like it. It works better on audio because you can't see the ice cream cone. <laughs> no ice cream cone. There's no ice cream. He's at a podium. What do you think happened here? Why do you think McCarthy caved at the last minute to avoid a shutdown that almost everyone thought would happen? I mean, like Friday, heading into the weekend, it was like, it was like most certainly, most likely. What, what do you think happened? It's the, the, the thing that I like don't understand is McCarthy clearly felt like he needed to prove to his caucus that there was no way out of this without Democratic votes. And a lot of the assumption, a lot of the assumptions were that, okay, in order for that to happen, there has to be a shutdown. There has to be some pain before that can happen. And for whatever reason, McCarthy decided he didn't need to wait for the shutdown to actually transpire to have the vote. And I think part of it might just be that it was becoming increasingly clear that no matter what he did, there was no avoiding this motion to vacate coming in the next week. Yeah, seems right. I mean, he blinked. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think he originally thought that maybe he could pass something through the House uh, with all Republican votes. And then, you know, it obviously wouldn't pass the Democratic held Senate and the White House, but then he could trigger a shutdown and everyone could argue about it. 
I think he realized last week after several votes that he couldn't get anything passed the House with just Republican votes. And then he realized he was going to get jammed by the Senate because McConnell was going to throw in with Democrats in the Senate to pass a bipartisan funding bill. So if there was a shutdown, it would have been McCarthy versus not only Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, but Mitch McConnell and a bunch of Senate and House Republicans who wanted to pass a bipartisan funding bill. And a bipartisan funding bill that would have included funding for Ukraine. Yeah. And I think he realized, look, it's, you know, probably hard to win a shutdown fight uh, when it's uh, just a Republican bill passing through the House. But when you can't even get something passed through the House, it can be really hard to win a shutdown. Yeah, they couldn't even get a defense appropriations bill passed. Right. They they can't do the basics of anything. Yeah, they couldn't get anything done. How big of a problem, Tommy, is the lack of additional Ukraine funding? I mean, I think it's a big deal. For Ukraine, it's obviously existential, but I think that, uh, well, the broader context is I think the U.S. has passed something like $75 billion for Ukrainian aid so far, and Biden wants another $24 billion, which is a lot of money. And for a while, there was a broad, pretty bipartisan um, support and polls for supporting Ukraine and giving them you know, stuff, guns, et cetera. And now uh, that that polling has eroded over time. There's a CNN poll in August that found a majority of Americans opposed more U.S. aid for Ukraine. So, you know, I always thought that an up or down vote in Congress would probably pass and probably pass in a bipartisan way. Like there's more support for Ukraine in Congress maybe than in the broader electorate. But um, I just I'm not sure how you get an up or down vote right now in the House. And and Matt Gates seems to think that McCarthy is it Gates or Geitz. What are we going with these days? I thought it was Gates. Is it Geitz? I don't know. Gates. I just all I see is the Botox in his forehead. It seems so strong. (laughs) That's my opinion. Um, but so <laughs> defamation training, <laughs> this, uh, you know, what to call it. you have to say the joke. Now we're going to get sued for that. God damn it. Uh, I suspect that you could get a bipartisan majority if you had an up or down vote on some sort of like a reasonable amount of funding. But, uh, you know, I don't know. And McCarthy Gates, Gates thinks there's a secret deal that the White House made. Biden seems to suggest there might be one that the White House won't comment on it. But I just don't know how you get to that vote. Right. Because the strategy was let's pair Ukraine money with disaster relief money and other popular stuff and force everybody to vote for it. But now they passed all the disaster relief money. So what do you do? Maybe yeah. some border security money? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't think McCarth- McCarthy, uh, he's got enough problems. He doesn't want to be talking about any secret side Ukraine deal right now. Yeah, he's got. By the way, how can he keep all these secret deals aside? It's like, <laughs> he's, just, he's like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire at the end. <laughs> he's just running in and out, <laughs> changing in the bathroom, talk, telling Biden one thing, telling the Republicans the other, another thing. It's not, yeah. I mean, look, I think... The problem becomes if the next potential government shutdown fight hinges on Ukraine aid, you could then see McCarthy and the House Republicans shutting down the government over that. Yeah. And, you know? and, and well, and McCarthy was accusing Democrats of shutting down the government to support Ukraine on the Sunday shows, which royally pissed off a whole lot of Democrats. Yeah. Right? And, and well, I, I think that there is you're right that the Congress is behind where the country has moved on the issue. There is still a majority certainly in the Senate, there's still a majority in the House that if it came to a vote would support Ukraine aid. So it's the same dynamic that keeps playing out. If a bill uh, if a bill came to the floor, there's a majority for it, but there's not a majority among Republicans for it. Right, right. And the, the support for supporting Ukraine has slipped uh, precipitously among Republicans in particular. But of course, there's also not a majority among Republicans for any kind of funding bill right now. So that might save the Ukraine aid in the end. Because you need Democratic votes. Yeah, right. And the the dynamic continues to be the same. The only bill that can pass the House and the Senate is a bipartisan bill with more Democrats in 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 the House than Republicans in the House. 
Well, the other thing that might save Ukraine aid and avert another government shutdown is uh, Matt Gates's antics here. Yeah. Uh, because now the fun really begins. Not only we're going to have another potential shutdown fight in 45 days, but we have a fight over who should be Speaker of the House. <laughs> that's that's about to uh, happen right now this week. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had a choice between shutting down the government or potentially losing his job as Speaker. And sure enough, Gates said he plans to file a motion to vacate this week. Here he is on the House floor and talking to reporters afterwards. It is going to be difficult for my Republican friends to keep calling President Biden feeble while he continues to take Speaker McCarthy's lunch money in every negotiation. What commitments were made to, pre to President Biden to continue the spending of President Biden in exchange for doing things for President Biden? It is becoming increasingly clear who the Speaker of the House already works for, and it's not the Republican conference. If Kevin McCarthy works for Democrats and utilizes Democrats in order to keep power, that would be consistent with everything we've seen from him. And have you spoken to Mr. President Trump about this? I have. And what, what was his advice to you? Uh, I think I'm going to keep that between the two of us. Have you talked to Oh man, this he, is fun. He is. This is fun. Let's just let's just enjoy this moment of fun before the chaos continues. <laughs> and it somehow redounds to a terrible catastrophe that we're not quite yet understanding. <laughs> but at this moment, but at, at this, this moment, moment, very fun. It, look, Matt Gates is a pig in shit. Yes, he is loving every it. fucking moment of this. And then he's going to the floor and giving speeches that you could just copy and paste into Democrats. He's cutting ads for the Biden campaign. <laughs> I un, love it. Thank you, Matt Gates. Unbelievable. I mean, in-kind contribution. I, by the way, it's like, it is pretty remarkable where we're at, where the current Speaker of the House, like, we're a nerd to it in so many ways, but it is a bit unusual that it is just a thing that Republicans and Democrats all agree. Kevin McCarthy is a liar. They call him a liar with an L. It is wild. Yeah, because he is. Well, and, all also, and also, I mean, not to defend Kevin McCarthy here, but he kind of had to lie <laughs> because he put himself in a terrible situation. And the root of this is in order for him to become speaker, to get the job after 15 votes, he said, OK, we'll insert this rule into the agreement where you only it only takes one member to trigger a motion to vacate vote a vote to get rid of the speaker and uh so that's his fucking fault yeah that's why you should have no sympathy for him because this guy so desperately wanted this job that he made it impossible to govern the house i think it was carl hulse the new york times said that mccarthy likes being speaker so much that he'll just like post up in public places and take photos with tours because he just like likes being speaker and being in the speaker's lobby and showing off. Like Tom power. Hanks sitting on that Forrest yeah, Gump bench. Monkey's paw. <laughs> you got that. That's what you yeah. Careful you wish for, Kevin, because yeah. now you got it. But also, it's like, Tommy, thank you for letting the people listening to this show know that they shouldn't feel bad for Kevin McCarthy, something that they were all doing. <laughs> Listen, there's I a lot of Kevin stands here. Defense. I just said, this is why he had to lie. <laughs> yeah, his apologist. How else was he going to have? He's going to keep his job. Yeah, he's he got to lie to Biden and then he's got to do the Mrs. Doubtfire thing. Yeah, he had to lie. It was the only way to get the thing he wanted. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is power. Uh, and I will just say it will be um, difficult for Republicans to still make the argument that Joe Biden is uh, is feeble because uh, he keeps taking Kevin McCarthy's lunch money. I think they'll still do it, though. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll, they'll take a run at it. I'll take, they'll take a run okay at it. They take a run at it. All right. So what does Gates need to succeed here? And what are the chances that he ultimately does? So one member, so he can force the motion to vacate vote. That, that just takes, he can do that alone. Uh, winning that vote, though, will take a majority. So I don't know if he's put it forward yet as of this recording. I don't think so. But then basically the leadership has two days 
to bring up this motion to vacate deal. There's a couple ways McCarthy could uh, try to kill it. They could basically say, should the House be considering this right now? Yes or no, and, and vote it down that way. They could uh, vote on a motion to table the bill. But again, you need a majority to do that. So in both cases, Democrats have a lot of power because they could vote to uh, bail out McCarthy, they could vote to get rid of McCarthy, or they could vote present, which changes the math and makes it easier for him to win. So this is where all the kind of machinations start. And if I got any of that wrong, please blame uh, Jake Sherman at Punchbowl. <laughs> yeah, he needs a uh, he needs a majority of those present and voting, which means that if someone votes present, the threshold goes down. And then, uh, so if every Democrat, here's one way to think about it. If every Democrat votes to dump McCarthy, which they normally would in a situation like this. Normally they'd yeah, should Kevin McCarthy be speaker? We all agree. No. no. So no. if every Democrat votes to dump McCarthy, then Gates would only need five Republicans to join him in, in voting to oust McCarthy, which he very likely has. Eli Crane, Victoria Sparts, Andy Biggs, Bob Good. He's already got a couple. He, he's... He had people the same think he could get up people, to 20. The kooky caucus. He had, he had the group of, same group of people that took it that took us to so many ballots to get Yeah, to he's get like, like he lost some like place. he doesn't have Chip Roy, he doesn't have Byron Yeah, Donald, some of them are getting mad at no his antics, right? Like so he's got he's he's losing some of them, right, but right. he probably has enough if he has all the Democrats. But the point the time he made stands which is if the Democrats all vote together, they basically decide whether or not Kevin McCarthy remains a speaker. So Next question, should the Democrats bail out Kevin McCarthy? And if they do, what do you think they can get out of the deal? Love it? So I asked, I think it's worth just- Yeah, you, you I already asked, interviewed Jayapal. I interviewed Jayapal about this. She didn't get into the specifics. The other thing I asked was also just sort of like, is this about, so there's the vote to oust and then there's what happens after a speaker is oust, right? There's like a few different places at which the Democrats will have power in this. Like she really didn't want to get into it except to say that the- only way she thought Democrats would go along with any kind of plan would be if there was actual rule changes that were written down that Democrats would have, like written extractions, not a promise from McCarthy, not like a side deal, not like we'll do what, you know, not all the kinds of deals he's been making over the last year. Yeah. None of which he has honored so yeah. far. Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, no IOUs from that guy. But also McCarthy's problem is that Gates can just put forward the motion to vacate again and again and again, and he has threatened to do so. So you're right. You could, like, the only path forward that seems to fix anything is some sort of grand bargain, as mm. they like to say in D.C. Yum, yum, yum. That includes rule changes. <laughs> Are Simpson and or Bull still alive? <laughs> uh, a joke for three people <laughs> in this room. Uh, they put together some sort of rule changes that, I don't know, disempower the right-wing fringe in the House, make it more governable for McCarthy, make it more governable, for, give Democrats a little bit more power. But I don't know. Is that really on the table? I, who yeah, knows? There's, so there's a whole menu of con possible concessions. Uh, it seems like there's some uh, fantasy politics being yeah, played here. I yeah. saw someone being like, a lot of West Wing maybe, maybe the say that uh, the the NRCC is not allowed to spend any money on uh, you know against vulnerable Democrats and races in yeah. 2024. It's like okay, yeah, yeah that'll and, work. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and Donald Trump has to be quiet for six months. <laughs> Can't say a word. I would rather him say a lot. Uh, Politico has said that one thing that's not negotiable: forcing McCarthy to stick to the spending caps he inked with Biden in May. That Dems say isn't a concession; it's a given. So that is interesting, and it does make more like. You're not going to save Kevin McCarthy if then he's not going to agree to the fucking deal he agreed to with Joe Biden in the summer on spending. But then if I guess if McCarthy does that, then he's I don't I don't know what happens here. I don't the, the thing that's confusing about like, OK, so they make a deal on spending. 
every McCarthy goes against that deal for what he was trying to pass mm-hmm. through the House. But McCarthy has to go against that deal to get anything passed through the House because of the promises he made to the House Republicans. And what actually ends up passing doesn't violate the deal. It's just a continuation of the deal. So in a sense, what what McCarthy ends up actually push putting through the House in the end does uphold the deal he made with Biden before. It's just that everyone's claiming he broke his deal when he did the when he tried to pass the House bill. Right. I don't know. I, I didn't quite follow that. So everyone's saying McCarthy's a liar because McCarthy went back in the deal he did with Biden. Yes, but he's only he tried a, to go back. He tried, to, but he tried to go back. But McCarthy does a lot of things to demonstrate what can and can't work, mm-hmm. right? Like no matter what McCarthy passed through the House, what McCarthy passed through the House was never going to pass through the Senate. It was a messaging bill for a fight. So in some sense, couldn't McCarthy have just been doing what he did to get a Republican bill through ultimately to uphold the deal? Because whatever he was going to pass through both the Senate and the House would have uphold the deal anyway. Sure, maybe, but the, the only the only thing that matters here is if he ends up agreeing, like to keep his job. If he ends up saying, "Okay, if you guys support me, Democrats as Speaker, then I will agree to the Biden deal, and uh, at those spending levels, and we'll just you know keep the government open, and we'll keep it open at the levels that Joe Biden and I agree to, and that's it." Then Matt Gates could say, "Okay, I'm going to do another motion to vacate." Then maybe. Ideally, then more Republicans would uh, would, would join, join him. Matt Gates because oh he just did this. But I think at that point, like if you've got all the Democrats on board, saving McCarthy as as one block, then like I don't think that Gates will have the votes to oust McCarthy. Well, the other thing, yeah, he that, won't have a majority. And it's also why I think that any kind of deal can't just be about budgeting or policy. It has to be about genuine concessions in committees and votes and actual power sharing, which is the thing that Jayapal talked about as well. It can't just be to, you have you you uphold some policy deal we made a year ago. He already made that deal. He yeah. should be living by it anyway. And, and Matt Gates, I mean, he's an arsonist. He hates Kevin McCarthy. He's getting a lot of attention and probably could run for governor of Florida. So real fiscal conservatives are furious at him that they had a deal that cut uh, domestic spending by eight percent and got a bunch of border funding, and they said no to that. And now, so but what, like the trap here for Matt Gates is. He will either get rid of McCarthy or he'll say McCarthy is a pawn of the Democrats and that's the only way he is still in power. So it's not a great setup for the speaker. Yeah, though I I, I do think this does, it changes the dynamics of the next shutdown fight just because I think Democrats have so much more leverage now. I mean, we always had leverage because Republicans only control one house of Congress and it wasn't even, it was, there wasn't even a majority of Republicans who wanted to have a shutdown. So Kevin McCarthy never really had that much leverage except for shutting down the government and getting all the blame himself along with his house Republicans that voted to shut it down. And the fact that a bunch of Republicans who are in Biden districts could say, fuck this and join a discharge position with Democrats and get out of this anyway. But I do think that if he wants to keep his job, then he will have to agree to keep the government open and work with Democrats to pass something. Right. And as part of that, you can come up with some kind of rule change because you'd have a majority Yeah, that would be able to say you need Matt Gates plus 10 other assholes to do a... Right. And McCarthy's, McCarthy might be banking on the fact that Democrats will look at the menu of options they have in front of them for who could come next and decide that a lying asshole who will say anything is actually their best option because he has no principles give him the votes anyway no yeah. principles how how nice to have a we can look at them he's, he'll do anything now for democrats i think uh you'd want to make a promise to maybe save mccarthy uh once or twice <laughs> or you know just to get through the government shutdown thing because like you were saying tommy down the road 
if McCarthy is really, if Mackey is able to prove that McCarthy is now just a quote unquote tool of Democrats, then you could start seeing more and more Republicans as time goes on over the next several months, over the next year, say like, all right, we're done with Kevin McCarthy. And then maybe you trigger another motion to vacate someday down the road and the Democrats are like, oh, I'm not saving you twice. Right. That's why I don't, I sort of feel like any real deal would have to change the motion to vacate threshold and some other structural things to make sure that we're just not trapped in this endless cycle of Matt Gates being mad, or man, imagine that that the, the, they take away the power of motion, motion to vacate, then the Republicans would be so pissed at Kevin. That'd be funny, right? Yeah, that's the other thing about this. It's like we 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 hear a lot about the like the the Republicans in vulnerable districts, and then we hear a lot about the Freedom Caucus. But there is this soft middle between the two that, for all we know, this is a like completely anathema to them and a reason they would say, I'm done with Kevin McCarthy. It's time to move on to Steve Scalise or whoever. Yeah, I think McCarthy controls like 200 votes and the rest are kind of yeah nightmares up for grabs. I just don't know. No one has floated an alternative for who could do a better job, right? Everyone talks about Steve Scalise, but he's doing some medical treatment. Um, so they're kind of waiting for him to get through that before they'll talk about alternatives. Even Tom, Matt Gates won't talk about alternatives. Tom Emmers has been floated around too. He's the majority. He's the whip now. And even Donald S- Trump. Even Steve Donald Trump. What do you? Even, Steve Scalise even is out there. Like even his like there. Everyone even Steve Scalise's statement today was like so lukewarm. Like I remain committed to Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Well, they need. He needs to be. Yeah. Ready for uh, stepping in. Ready for action. What do you guys think uh, the call between Donald Trump and Matt Gates was like? <laughs> Good question. I mean, Trump only cares about harming Biden, right? So he's like, shut down the government, blow up the economy, do whatever it takes to harm this guy. And it's not like uh, he's got a lot of loyalty to Kevin. (laughs) No. (laughs) He'd dump that guy in a second. Yeah. And they're certainly not, you know, strategizing, playing, like thinking through the moves. No, not doing whip counts. Yeah. Yeah, they don't don't know the names. Uh, Speaking of Trump, he is in court again, defending himself against a lawsuit brought by the state of New York that accuses him of committing business fraud. Last week... The judge delivered a surprise pretrial ruling that Trump is liable for fraud, and the judge has already revoked the business licenses for Trump Tower and the Trump International Hotel. Now the judge is going to decide the rest of Trump's punishment. Attorney General Tish James is asking for a $250 million fine and a ban on Trump running any business in the state of New York. Uh, Trump's lawyer told the judge that he will hear testimony from Donald Trump during this trial. But apparently Trump couldn't wait to take the stand to lay out his defense. Here he is during a court break on Monday. This is a judge that should be disbarred. This is a judge that should be out of office. This is a judge that some people say could be charged criminally for what he's doing. He's interfering with an election. And it's a disgrace. Thank you very much. What do you guys think about the deft legal strategy of uh, threatening the judge who's solely responsible for deciding the fate of your business empire? <laughs> I was like trying to like, why does Trump matter because of the substance of what's at issue and the threat to his livelihood or just the fact that he had to sit in a chair and pay attention for a couple hours? Yeah. Just absolutely bored of his fucking mind getting angrier and angrier and angrier. I mean, he's he so hungry. to show up. Like, well, I don't even know. He, and also there was, there's, uh, I didn't expect there to be camera footage. There's camera footage. Oh, there's a great, you, there, there's a great moment where the camera comes around and the judge basically does like a, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and someone said it to like the credits of some 90s sitcom. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this one speaks to the fact that Trump never has a legal strategy these days. He has a political strategy where he wins re-election uh, and that solves all of his legal problems. Because otherwise, being like, hey, see that guy over there who controls my fate? Fuck that guy. <laughs> it's a really, really 
weird thing for him to do. He didn't have the balls to to hurt me. <laughs> it's like most people grovel before a judge deciding their fate. I'm not guilty. He's guilty. <laughs> he should be charged. Well, also, like, also last week, he like Trump was like in one of his truths was something like, "I need a judge, federal, state, anywhere, please." <laughs> Some judge, help me. <laughs> it's, yeah, also, it's weird that, you know, Trump is very mad that he's not getting a jury trial, but that's because his lawyers forgot or just, just decided not, not to, to request for one. Yeah, they so didn't now ask. it's in the hands of the, his fate is in the hands of this judge that he it, hates. It yeah, also, the judge was like, uh, no one asked for a jury. That's why I'm deciding. You could ask for a jury. No one's asked for one. And also just, it, it, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I just didn't fully internalize how quickly this trial was going to start. And like the fact that- It's hard to keep track. It's in fairness, hard to keep track of all the trials. It is, it is. But like, you know, they, the judge issues this surprise ruling say, hey, I've looked at what you've both presented. We can go straight to damages here. Like we, this is, this is open and shut. And so who knows what they were preparing for, but it must be quite a shock to go from thinking, oh, I'm going to be in a trial where I get to at least try to assert innocence, the, the, the outcome is in doubt. And now it's purely about how much he owes and, and how much the damage is. And that is, that is a, he, that's trapped. He's trapped there. I find it incredibly difficult to believe that these lawyers or are going to let Donald Trump testify. I, I, I saw something that perhaps when the defense lawyer told the judge that they would be hearing testimony from Donald Trump, it might be the testimony that was already pre-recorded in the earlier for stages the, of, yeah, for, okay. in this trial. And maybe they'll just play it for the, for the judge. I don't know why they would need to because the judge would could have already watched it but like i'm at, putting donald trump on the stand just i mean great i can't wait but you know but trump's probably like look every time i show up at one of these things um, I, I get a five point boost in the polls so here yeah, i am maybe. again ranting yeah, about another judge yeah. yeah maybe he just assumes he's gonna lose he wants to shape public opinion and he also thinks he's going to appeal this and eventually uh hit some right-wing judge somewhere on, well, the, on the ladder but <laughs> gonna... he's already lost he has right, lost. Yeah, he's lost. This is going to be about the number. So this mm. is just about a number and like what he owes. There was a criminal trial last year where his CFO got sent to jail. Yeah, this is like pretty well established fact pattern here. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think he's going to going to be too successful. Which is also, I mean, perhaps the uh, forgetting to ask for the jury was intentional because maybe Trump just thought he'd have better luck telling everyone that it was a crooked judge than it was a crooked jury. Although I don't really think he'd care that much about the distinction. At least with the jury, you get like maybe one MAGA guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're like Bernie Carrick on there. Like, oh, sweet. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Just like, that's can true. we move this thing to Staten Island? Please? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Maybe yeah, we, that's... <laughs> uh, just, I just, just want firefighters from Staten Island. That's not jury. Please, <laughs> please, Your Honor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, 
So, do you guys know that Trump was uh, right here in Anaheim, California over the weekend? What? Checking out <laughs> checking out Disney? Yeah, he was yeah. checking out Disney. Uh, he was there at the California Republican Convention, uh, and he laid out his larger vision uh, for law and order in a second term during a rambling speech. Let's listen. Sure, I will direct a completely overhauled DOJ to investigate every radical DA and AG in America for their illegal, racist, and reverse enforcement of the law. And you don't like somebody, or if somebody's beating you by 10, 15, or 20 points like we're doing with crooked Joe Biden, let's indict the motherfucker. Let's indict. And we'll stand up to crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. I mean, this. So this is all being covered as background noise. Like I had this did not the, Trump. Trump calling for the execution of suspected shoplifters as they walk out the door of the store. That is that did not make a lot of headlines. The Atlantic's Brian Class is calling this the banality of crazy. <laughs> professor. Um, he argues that the press needs to treat Trump's incitements and lawlessness as the story of the 2024 election. What do you What do you guys think? It seems, it seems like that's, yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice, I guess. But like, that's what Biden's doing when he's trying to, you know, draw attention to this. That's what we're doing when we're talking about. I don't, I don't know how at this point he, he has inured us to this kind of stuff. He is doing this every day, threatened to shoot, threatened to execute Mark Milley last week. That that was the fifth story. Yeah, yeah. that finally bubbled up. <laughs> it did bubble up, and also you know, look, Mark Milley got booked on uh, sixty minutes and and made comments about this. And I think his his uh, final speech as chairman of the Joint Chiefs reference, you know, sort of like not kowtowing to dictators. So I do think this stuff. Every time someone yells about something not getting covered, it ends up getting covered. I think this was probably just like a late night speech on what a Saturday night, Friday night, yeah. right in, in Anaheim. So you know, not the it wasn't downtown New York, right. but um, I, you're right that Biden is making uh, political violence threats to the courts. Like that was a big part of the speech in the interview that we're going to talk about in the next section that he did. So I, it is becoming part of the narrative in the campaign. But yeah, of course, it's crazy to shoot a shoplifter is, is an insane thing for a president to suggest. And, you know, you can't really say, oh, that's just Trump says these crazy things like he has put out a proposal, a campaign proposal, policy proposal that if he's president again, they will he will execute drug dealers. Right. So it's it's not that far from drug dealers to shoplifters. Uh, he's talked about, you know, sending uh, federal troops into cities that have high crime rates using the Insurrection Act next time around, uh, using also troops to start deporting immigrants. Right. Like he is he's starting to propose these things. And of course, they want to clear out all the bureaucrats in the federal government so that they only have Trump loyalists who will carry out all these plans and not worry about uh, adhering to the Constitution or the law. Or So it's something to something to actually be quite scared about, I think. It's real. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I agree. I just I also like you know, we, the insurrection pushed it out of the headlines, but like, you know, clearing Lafayette Park, one of the first, uh, uh, one of the first, one of the, one of the early 2016 kerfuffles was like, ah, you got to knock the crap out of them. Like he's been talking about drug dealers being executed for a very long time. This is like, the reality is, yes, these are more extreme statements. They are also incremental to the crazy shit he's been saying for years. Yeah, I, I, I just, just think it's quickly worth pointing out that he's not alone in making some of these comments. Uh, Ron DeSantis is talking about executing suspected drug dealers 
trafficking drugs across the border. And when pressed on how you would figure out someone's a drug dealer versus, I don't know, a, a parent with a kid, he was like, well, we figured it out in Iraq, so we'll figure it out here. We absolutely did not figure it out in Iraq. We had a horrific problem with killing civilians. So, you know, like this kind of bloodthirsty law and order rhetoric is gaining a lot of traction on the right. They're all chasing each other to a you know, darker, darker place on this stuff. And what is chilling to me is obviously it is terrible that Donald Trump is saying these things, but joking about how how uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband was beaten in the head with a hammer during a home invasion, getting laughs, the the blood curdling cheers from people about shooting shoplifters. The problem, right, is that over decades, the right-wing media has like stirred these people up and gotten them to this point. Trump was the one who figured it out, but so have a lot of other people now too. And look, I don't think that the media needs to cover this in a way where it's like, look how bad Trump is, right? Again, it's not the media's job to win the election for Democrats. But if we think back to a lot of the complaints around the CNN town hall with Trump and Caitlin Collins, it was, um, why are we platforming Trump again, right? Or we shouldn't, there's this whole movement, like we shouldn't amplify his message. The mistake in 2016 was platforming Trump and amplifying his message, blah, 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 blah. Like the more Trump that people hear, the worse it is for him, right? His, when does his approval ratings tank or go, go, go the lowest, right? Trying to take healthcare away, Charlottesville, January 6th, the daily COVID press conferences. The mm-hmm. more people hear from Trump, the worse it is for him, right? Like the, the the person who is best at prosecuting the case against Trump is not a Democrat. It's not a Republican. It's not a lawyer. It's not a judge. It's Donald Trump. Yeah, I agree. With and that. I just think that like the the media sort of overcorrected from 2016 in ways in 2020 by thinking like, oh, we don't need to platform him all the time or list, or have people listen to him. Like, I think people need to hear him all the time. Well, especially now when, look, Ron DeSantis' super PAC today decided to release a bunch of polls that show him losing by between 28 and 31 in early primary states. Uh, in, in head-to-head matchups, Donald Trump is getting over 50% in New Hampshire. So I think everyone's just got to wrap their heads around the fact that there's like a 90% chance Trump is the Republican nominee, if not 95, 100%. Uh, and he's going to have a 50-50 chance against Joe Biden. So yes, I do think the coverage of these kinds of comments and all the other things he's saying will pick up and increase. My concern is uh, the overlap of where some of these issues will be popular. I think the really hard line, bloodthirsty immigration rhetoric is more popular than uh, people think, and it's really scary. Ron DeSantis is talking about uh, deporting everyone who came into the country during the Biden administration. Yeah. Like Seven million, eight million people. Yeah. I mean, my 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 question about all this is, yeah, like I, I agree. Trump is uh, at his least popular when he's most in people's faces, but also memories are short. You know, Donald Trump was at his lowest ebb after Access Hollywood and, you know, James Comey putting out a letter. Yes, that hurt Hillary Clinton. But one of the things it did is it kind of pushed Donald Trump's scandal aside just for a couple days, just for long enough for people to forget just enough that just enough people forgot how heinous he was. And like, sure, do I think covering this now is really important? Yeah, I think people should understand how much of a threat Donald Trump is, how extreme his rhetoric has gotten. But really, like, if it's, this is going to be something we're going to be dealing with for the next seven months. I realized that Access Hollywood seemed like a bigger scandal at the time. I think what came after, <laughs> the many years after Access Hollywood, at least made me think that there is a difference between Trump being caught saying things that are horribly offensive and Trump saying things that 
could end up affecting people's lives in a tangible way because it would result in policy from Donald Trump. So I do think that like like January 6th, like all these th- these sort of these incitements to violence, to physical violence, to political violence, I think that lands with people and lands with voters in a different way than your typical Donald Trump said something crazy today or Donald Trump said something horribly offensive about this person or that person or that person. And I just think that we get it like the Biden folks they totally understood this uh, in the run-up to the 2022 midterms and the January 6th committee understood it and Biden understood it. And I think like making sure that that message is out there and that people are understanding what could actually happen if Donald Trump wins is going to be the most important thing to do. Yeah, it's just really hard. I mean, Biden in his speech uh, uh, at the McCain Institute tried to get into the Schedule F changes and and removing civil service protection from all these uh, federal employees, which is a really big deal. And you know, I think Biden laid it out well, like Trump is going to make civil servants pledge fealty to him and not to the Constitution and not have any protections. It's just it's a tough thing to explain. Yeah. And I think and look, it was in a it was an official speech then he's not in like campaign mode. Right. But the easier way, the more understandable way to say that is like, yeah, Mike Flynn in charge of the Defense Department and Sidney Powell is AG. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you just yeah. you got to make it easier for people to understand them like, oh, no, he's going to get rid of a civil servant bureaucrat and replace them with a political appointee. Like that's that's not very. It's not yeah. going to move a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you you said it, but like one of Trump's lowest moments wasn't actually because of his rhetorical excesses or threats to violence. It was his position on healthcare, his extreme position on healthcare. I wouldn't say his position. I would say his attempt to take it away from yeah, people, his, his, which right. then is in the same category of like January 6th, people worried about political violence in their own community. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, you've got to bring it home to people. And I do think that like losing your healthcare or worried about the country falling into like chaos and violence is they both can affect you. Yeah. I mean, look, you can say that like people were worried about political violence in their, in their communities. What they saw on their television was an attack on the nation's capital. Yeah. It was in a, so, so I, yeah. So, you know, so Biden gave that speech in Arizona. It was sort of little noticed. Uh, good speech, it was a great speech. Everyone should go check it out, but it, it didn't get a ton of coverage. He honored the late John McCain there, and he warned that today's Republican Party is being driven by an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs of democracy. Uh, he then sat down for an interview with John Harwood for ProPublica, where he laid out the stakes for 2024. Somehow we got to communicate to the American people, this is for real. Mm-hmm. This is real if they were to take over. If the former president were to become president again, the things he says he will do are a threat to American democracy. And by the way, it's not just here. As I travel the world, Mm -hmm. I have heads of state asking me, I mean, conservative heads of state, look, what's going to happen? Does that mean? Because democracy is in jeopardy in other parts of the world as well. I never thought I'd see a time when someone was worried about being on a jury because there may be physical violence against them if they voted the wrong way. What'd you guys think of the interview? Right message for Biden in 2024? It was a good interview. I mean, I think the challenge is just getting enough people to see it. You know, I mean, they, they did it with ProPublica. ProPublica is a great organization. They've done amazing work uh, digging into corruption at the Supreme Court, for example. But, you know, I checked the view count on YouTube. It was like 115,000, right? So, like, got a lot of work to do to reach more people with this very important urgent message. The speech is the other part of that. I saw the White House was deeply frustrated that Fox News took uh, none of President Biden's speech in Arizona live. 
par for the course from them. But, you know, it's but like reaching people with this message is really tough. Shows you what a bubble Twitter is, too, because like I went on Twitter Sunday and all you could see is people talking about Harwood's interview and it was a great interview and, and, and Biden did great and it was great questions. But a <laughs> hundred thousand views on YouTube, you're like, oh yeah, everyone was talking about it in a very small bubble. Yeah. And it got, it got picked up. It'll get clipped and shared it and got, picked up other places. For sure. Right? But, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's, I, first of all, I think the speech was excellent. I, there, it is, you know, there's been a few different stories about how he's kind of like drawing on his like coterie of historians. And the speech is definitely, it is a, there are lines that are clearly meant to evoke FDR's speech at the 1936 Democratic Convention about rendezvous with destiny. This it talks about this generation's job. He says, you know, in the rendezvous with destiny speech, he says, you know, uh, uh, that other places they have sold their heritage of freedom for the illusion of a living. In Biden's speech, he says, uh, people are giving away that's most precious to them because they feel frustrated. He is trying to evoke the seriousness of what the world faced with with the rise of fascism in this moment. My and and what is also clear in the interview is how deep, like deeply and personally Biden takes this and how much he views it as like the central goal and mission of his presidency in his life is to be here to make the case for democracy and to make the case for not just like democracy as a form of government, but democracy as a practice of being respectful of of treating the other side as opponents and not enemies, like how much he internalized that and how meaningful it was for him to speak about John McCain. But there was only there was one part of the speech he gave where he says, for all its faults, American democracy remains the best path forward for, to prosperity, possibilities, progress, fair play, and equality. And what I found when I was listening to the interview, when I was watching the speech, you're right. It is like a big conversation about people that are hyper-engaged. They, they are worried about the threat to democracy. Biden is correctly worried about the threat to democracy. But there's another part of the case that I don't think comes through in the speech, which is a very grand story about the values of the democracy and why these threats are so dangerous, which is why is democracy the better way to organize ourselves? Why do you believe democracy can deliver? What are the ways in which you think democracy is going to be better for people in their day-to-day -day lives? How can it help them? How does it matter? How does it manifest? Because there are portions of the speech, as Tommy points out, where he goes into great detail about Schedule F and the federal bureaucracy and all of these details. And there's other parts where that are like very... Um, um, like emotional and direct and not as sort of bureaucratic. But I do think that that's part of the story that, that I think a lot of people assume, which is democracy is just better and everybody gets that. But one of the issues we see in poll after poll is like, especially for young people, they don't understand why democracy is so good. They don't understand why democracy should, should deliver. And we need to be making that argument too. I say two things about that. One, the Biden administration and the Biden campaign would say that the way that their economic agenda links to their democracy agenda is that Biden's whole goal since being president was to show that democracy can deliver. They keep saying that. And so that's all, you know, look, we did this bipartisan infrastructure bill. We passed the Inflation Reduction Act. We got all this done and we are showing through our action and through the legislation that Biden's passing that democracy can deliver for people. Right. And they're hoping they connect the dots. It's still tricky, but they're they're trying to do it. Second, I think you're right that like there's a lot of rhetoric so far, both in the Harwood interview and in the uh, very good Arizona speech, too. The next step is to be specific about what the Trump MAGA extreme agenda, anti-democratic agenda will actually mean for people. And that's going back to what I was saying where, you know, he wants to send troops into if you if you live in a blue city, which is most cities, 
Uh, and you and he decides you have high crime rates. He wants to use the Insurrection Act to send in federal troops to your city. Imagine that. Imagine if you're a, a business uh, that doesn't seem uh, sufficiently anti-woke. Uh, maybe he'll have his his new loyalist IRS director uh, investigate your business. Maybe if you are, uh, you know, a political opponent in some way, he's going to come after you with the DOJ because, you know, Rudy Giuliani will be attorney general. Like, I do think you've got to actually draw those connections. That's like the next step. Well, I think it's, it's also I, it's hard to sell that democracy is the best form of government and can deliver when all anyone ever hears is that Washington is a mess. I mean, we're currently right. in the middle of a government shutdown debate. So I agree with you, but it's like, it's a tough sell. I also think this speech, though, it wasn't just about democracy. There was also a big, like, veterans thing, keying off McCain, because they talked to, he brought back the uh, Atlantic reporting that Trump called dead service members suckers and losers at a cemetery. He talked about uh, Trump calling Mark Milley a traitor and floating death as punishment. There was a whole like kind of riff on uh, the ideals that McCain stood for that seemed designed to peel off the military vote. He went after Tommy Tuberville for his blockade on military promotions. They were just like, doing a lot of things in this speech. Yeah, just but one more, just I think everything that you just said was Right. But I think there's another piece of it. So you're you're talking about some of the kind of like the ways in which Trump's threats to political violence could be made to feel real for people. I think that's really important. But I do think one thing that and, and, I, and I do think they are doing this and just this was a speech that was broader about like kind of like big, big D democracy. But the threats to basic rights are also tied to the threat to democracy and referring to the basically, you know, he talks about the rule of law, but part of this is also live and let live and people being free to live as they want and not coming for the books you want to read and not coming for your kids' abortion teachers bans. and abortion bans and, and abortion bans. And so I think like it's not, Bi but when Biden thinks about the threats to democracy, it's clear in the interview, like he is very much focused on like undermining the rule of law, undermining democratic institutions and the threats to political violence. But I think more of it, I think I think it is very visceral for people, especially after the last year we've had that part of the attack on democracy is attack on is an attack on basic rights and like I, I feel like that is just as important and real for people yeah oh, that, and that's what i'm saying i, I wasn't just talking about political no, violence I know. I i'm saying like troops in your cities and like book bans and abortion bans and like all of the you know what you can't do is just talk about sort of gerrymandering and the filibuster filibuster and all this kind of stuff like Philly, that filibuster, filibuster. Yeah, because that all gets into process stuff right you got to say like what the anti-democratic agenda actually means how it would affect your life and there's a whole range of ways it can affect your life and there's a whole lot of people who like anti-democratic agendas the problem because it helps their outgroup uh stay in power but anyway right. did you guys catch there was a very funny moment in the speech uh where biden was referencing the 1972 campaign and he says to john harwood who's 66 you're not old enough to remember i know but... I know. Oh, well that's <laughs> What was interesting was a, about well, we had we had another Strom. I got Strom Thurmond got Strom, to, yeah. to help uh, reauthor finally reauthorize the Voting hits. Rights Act. I think like a long time ago. But. Yeah, at that moment, he also he, was, he started he used a term that you don't even hear anymore, which is limousine liberals. Uh, yeah, I he started talking about while, limousine yeah. liberals, and I've never been a limousine liberal. I will say though, you watch that John Harwood interview, and there is uh, the whole idea that Biden is like senile and and losing a step. He was sharp. No, he's on it. He has thought really deeply about these issues. He was very good. I he thought. was. I, I. He still does his like. Don't take old, our word for it. He does it, Yeah, he does his old timey references for sure because he's old <laughs> but he doesn't seem like he lost a step at all no i agree I actually I, that was something I, I was feeling the same way and and the other thing that was interesting too about it is like when he talks about the limousine liberal issue is actually getting at what we're talking about which is we have to like i've always understood that you can that you need to talk about issues in a way that people can really understand but the other thing he said that actually 
that I haven't heard him maybe articulate exactly this way. He said that uh, hate never goes away; it like hides under rocks until it's given optim uh, given oxygen. Yeah, that and was it interesting. Was it really kind of? It was just interesting seeing him kind of. By the time it was later in the interview, and he he was. Like, that was I, in the Strom Thurmond context. Yeah, he's and saying it, he used to think it would, would could be killed off, but instead he's learned that no, it just hides and waits to be resuscitated. Yeah, and the, the thing that's interesting is he always comes back at the, in that in that democracy speech. He ends by being like, "I've never been more optimistic about America. I've never been more optimistic about America." And I'm glad he's saying that, but he's not. He's actually he is very very worried. Yeah. <laughs> he is very very scared, and he is scared in part because he has this sort of practical understanding of like racism and bigotry yeah. clearly from his own experience and from being a very old man. And it was just interesting to see him kind of go there. Yeah, that was, was really interesting. I think what probably makes him optimistic is he believes that if enough people are made aware of this and uh, are paying attention, then we can overcome it and, again, and, like we have in the past. But he's worried. And he says, but that's why he keeps saying in the interview, it's real, it's real, it's yeah, real. And he's, yeah. and like, I, and I agree. And and I, it, it is frustrating for all of us. But in that moment, when he's saying it's real, it's real, it's real, he sounds like every resistance liberal that's like, why don't you people see this the way that I see this? And I think what is... The parts that we're talking about are like, how do you make it real for people? Yeah. And it has to get out of the historian yeah, has mode. To, has it to, just has, has to. to. Finally, we have a new senator here in California. Governor Newsom has appointed Emily's List President LaFonza Butler to fill the seat of the late Diane Feinstein, who passed away last week at the age of 90. Butler has quite a resume before leading the country's biggest organization to help elect pro-choice women. She led the fight for 15 in California as the head of the Service Employees International Union. She's also been a senior advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris during uh, Kamala Harris's campaign and will be the first black lesbian to serve in the United States Senate. What's still unknown is whether she'll serve as a temporary replacement or enter the crowded primary race to succeed Senator Feinstein that includes representatives Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. What do you guys think of the pick and how Newsom handled it? <laughs> I, I'll tell you what my, my honest reaction was, which is, oh, this doesn't seem like much of a caretaker. I guess the next time uh, Gavin Newsom goes to French Laundry, it'll be because uh, one of the three people currently running will have rolled his head in there. <laughs> I had a different reaction. I did. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was really look. The Senate's full of like rich people and lawyers, and I know it's cool to have like a former SEIU local 2015 president, right, and an Emily's List organizer and an activist. I thought she was sort of in the vein of other clearly interim picks who were basically former staffers. There was Mo Cowan in Massachusetts who took. Uh, John Kerry's seat for a short period of time. There's Ted Kaufman in Delaware, who was Biden's longtime chief of staff. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's going to decide to run. If she does, like, she'll have a real head of steam. But it seems like it was well received. I do think Gavin probably regrets putting a bunch of conditions on who he would name in advance. That just always seems to create political problems. Like politicians, the one lesson you want is, right, give yourself as much space as possible because Barbara Lee's supporters tried to box him in and, and demand that she be the one selected to this interim post. But I don't know, it seems like people are happy with the pick. Yeah, just so people know how this all went down, Newsom made a promise three years ago that he'd fill a hypothetical vacancy by Dianne Feinstein by appointing a black woman. This was after criticism that he didn't appoint a black woman to fill Kamala Harris's Senate seat, but appointed Alex Padilla, the current uh, senator, the other senator from California, who has become California's first Latino senator. What he clearly didn't account for or wasn't thinking about at the time was that there would already be a competitive primary for the seat when Feinstein retired or in this case died, featuring a black woman, Barbara Lee. 
And then he said he wouldn't appoint anyone who's running in the primary because he didn't want to give that person an unfair advantage when voters were going to decide soon anyway. Then last week, his office issued a (laughs) clarification saying anyone who he appointed was free to also run in the primary, which, of course, was always the case because there is like there's no such thing. There's no such thing as an interim replacement that has conditions where you can't run. That's just 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 not a constitutional requirement. Um, And so but I do think to Tommy's point, like LaFonza Butler, first of all, her resume is stellar. Very exciting that she's going to be California's newest senator. But because she is such a longtime Democratic Party activist and organizer, close with Vice President Harris. She almost served as Newsom's chief of staff. Uh, At one point, he tried to make her chief of staff. It does make me think that it's very possible she has already decided that she's not going to run and, and communicated that to Newsom. And he knew that when he picked her. Again, things change. She could decide, hell, I'm going to I'm going to run now. And if so, she would have five months to put together a campaign and raise a fuckload of money. Uh, Adam Schiff was out today reminding everyone that he has thirty two million dollars. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about it <laughs> is hand, that hand, uh, yeah. lesbians famously uh, can very quickly come to a decision to pursue something long term. And that's that's part of it as well. I don't even <laughs> barely get it. Barely that's, get it. Olivia, Olivia. Yeah. Olivia's with me. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's now um, there's now four elections. <laughs> for this, this Calvary is because there is a special election to fill out the last weeks of Feinstein's term, meaning that like once the election happens in November 2024, there would be between November and January when the new senator is sworn in, there'd be like a, a, a slice of like about a month for someone to become senator. But the the primary will for the special election will be held as the same day as the primary for the general election in March. And then the two other elections, the final, the, the, so, the general election for the special and the general election for the full six years will happen in November. But so do all these candidates, they're just going to file for both and every, hoping everyone's voting for the same person twice? I, I think they're all going to do what the other ones are going to do because you don't want to ha- like if Schiff decides to go on the special, then Porter and Lee are... are they're going to file on the special too. So I'm, I'm wondering if they'll have some kind of communication. Like, are we all doing this? Are we not doing this? Like, what's happening? Wild. Maybe LaFonza Butler will file for the special, you hey. know, and then she'll serve out the last month and, and the rest, the other three will say, okay, we're going As to As part off. of a speech where she says, I have decided to file for this uh, who knows? and I'm not going to pursue the election. And then, yeah, that would require, uh, I think, a little bit more of a collegial uh, California delegation that doesn't always get along. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that Katie Porter is going to do what Gavin Newsom's team wants her to do necessarily. Yeah, but I, I, like I said, I think they all probably, like LaFonza Butler, they probably all know LaFonza Butler. I'm sure she talked to all of them too, right? She's, you know, been part of California politics. And I do think it was a smart pick from Newsom because, you know, he was getting criticism from the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Barbara Lee supporters. And he selected someone who is not going to get criticism from any of those people. And sure enough, the CBC applauded the choice of LaFonza Butler after criticizing him on the Barbara Lee thing. So I think he sort of headed off any criticism about the pick um, because it's hard to criticize him picking someone who is progressive and a labor leader and, you know, head of Emily's list. Look, (laughs) this started because he didn't want to be criticized and now he's ending it by trying to not be (laughs) criticized and I hope it all works out. Hey, just based on this conversation, are there things we could do instead of democracy? (laughs) Are there alternatives? I know, this seems too complicated. She seems really cool. Um, I wonder, she's young too. She's like 44, 45. Yeah. The only challenge is she currently lives in Maryland. She's got a- (laughs) I saw saw, saw Daryl Eisner or someone was like, uh, question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just you just have to register to vote in California before you're uh, sworn yeah. in. That's all. That's, the, that's what the rules say. Well, you got to get an apartment or something. 
Yeah, well, she's been in California forever, too. So she's been like a fixture. It's not like she's a, a real carpetbagger here. She's been, she's been a fixture of California politics right, for years and years and years. Right, right. She just needs a mailing address. A regent, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, two decades she was uh, leader of SEIU California, so. All right, before we go to break, two quick housekeeping notes. The Supreme Court is officially back in session, and if you want to know what kind of bullshit they're up to this term, Strict Scrutiny is just the pod for you. Melissa Murray, Leah Littman, and Kate Shaw are brilliant, funny, and make the law accessible for dummies like us. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny each week wherever you get your pods. Also, this week is apparently banned book week. Uh, you know, I said last week was. Mm. I don't fucking know. You always call that too early. Yeah, how do I, how do I miss that week? It's you. the most important week. Uh, anyway. Go to votesaveamerica.com. Find all the ways uh, to help fight book bans across the country. We also have some fun merch in the Crooked store. There is Free the Books merch. Are You Afraid of the Books tees that are well-timed for Halloween and kids tees and onesies that say, read me a banned book. Check it out at crooked.com slash store. When we come back, Pramila Jayapal talks to Lovett about what role Democrats will play in the McCarthy-Gates drama. The government didn't shut down, but the House is still a shit show after last-minute passage of a bipartisan short-term funding bill that pushes the next funding deadline to November. Kevin McCarthy's allies are in a frenzy trying to save the Speaker's job as Matt Gates leads a right-wing rebellion to remove him, an effort that includes reaching out to Democrats to help him do it. Joining us to help us understand what is happening and why she didn't send Gates's call to voicemail, the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Representative Pramila Jayapal. Welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So for weeks, we were hearing that McCarthy wouldn't work with Democrats to get a CR passed because he wouldn't risk the gavel, which is, of course, exactly what he ended up doing. What can you tell us about how this went down? There was a lot of conversation that McCarthy had to somehow prove a shutdown had to happen to prevent a shutdown. What changed? What did you see? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we had to get down to the end, which is terrible, terrible way to run government. But I think from his perspective, he just didn't have the votes. And he kept leaning more and more to the right to try to get the votes. But when it became clear that uh, he still wasn't going to get the votes, despite cutting spending by 30% across the board, despite putting in all these terrible border provisions, he still wasn't going to have the votes he realized that two things. One, um, he was going to need us. And two, that uh, the Senate was going to jam him with Ukraine funding, which his people were not going to want if we didn't pass something first. And I think both of those things led to him realizing that one way or another, he's going to have a motion to vacate. He should get this deal done and perhaps bring more people in through doing that. Yeah, President Biden after uh, the deal came through, through said that he was hoping that this process would cause Kevin McCarthy to have some kind of a revelation. Uh, I don't know if you saw any light shining down on him or any kind of religious experience in his eyes, but is the fact that he thought no matter what he could do, that Gates and the, and the far right of his caucus was going to try to remove him, is that in part why the government didn't shut down? Look, there was no halo suddenly shining above Kevin McCarthy's head. He didn't undergo some kind of a big spiritual transition. I am not close <laughs> enough, John, to him to look in his eyes and see anything that's changed in his soul. Um, Kevin McCarthy exists every day to make sure that he can be speaker 
just two hours later, four hours later, six hours later. And I think the pressure from a lot of his Republicans in Biden districts was getting intense. They didn't want the government to shut down. Uh, the pressure from the Senate was getting intense because there was a Senate effort to push a bill over to us. And I think he realized that he was going to get a motion to vacate one way or another. So might as well bite the bullet, get this done, hope that he could buy some goodwill. We could talk about whether or not he did, but hope that he could buy some goodwill and just move forward. And I think that's exactly what happened. So I think there's a place where the far right, and I think a lot of Democrats, I think virtually everyone agrees, something that is that Kevin McCarthy isn't a reliable negotiator. People just don't trust him. Uh, Matt Gates reached out to you uh, to find out what Democrats might do uh, in the event of this effort to, um, you know, a motion to vacate, which is an effort to remove the speaker. Uh, you you kicked you told him basically we're not deal I'm not dealing with this today. Let's keep the government open. But but what is your <laughs> what is your take on what Democrats should be doing in response to this effort to remove McCarthy? Yeah. Well, first of all, I did tell him that any shot of us working with him would have to come after we had. Uh, a CR, a continuing resolution to fund the government. And so I think he gets, and you know, I think that helped in making sure he didn't push a motion to vacate soon. Um, we have had these conversations and really thought through all the scenarios with the Progressive Caucus. And our aim is to put as much power in the hands of Hakeem Jeffries, our leader, um, as possible. And so the the way to do that, because Kevin McCarthy is completely unreliable, I mean, let's look at the fact that the guy made a deal with the president, signed a bill into law around funding levels, and then immediately flipped on it. Let's look at the fact that he apparently told the president that he wanted to do Ukraine funding, according to the president. But when the president said that, he immediately flipped and said, not unless we do border stuff first. So the guy is completely unreliable. And that is one thing that both Democrats and Republicans agree on. He's a liar. And so if we are going to think about anything, and this is really going to be a call for our leadership, but also ultimately for all of us, we just need to make sure that it is baked into the rules of the House, that, that it isn't just relying on Kevin McCarthy's goodwill or that halo to suddenly come shining down or you know anything like that, but it's actually baked into the rules of the House. And so that's, I think, what we're hoping will happen. So I'm trying to understand that is similar to what you said earlier uh, uh, last week, that basically we don't we can't trust Kevin McCarthy. If we're going to do something that involves concessions, it's got to be written down, not one of these side agreements that Kevin McCarthy seems to make where he promises people things and they say that he's going back on his word. But then you were also asked if you would do anything to help Kevin McCarthy secure the gavel. And you said, no, do those two are those two things in conflict? Are they am I missing a nuance? Yes. I mean, what I said is don't look to us to save Kevin McCarthy unless we have some sort of power sharing agreement that's codified in the rules, because I don't trust him. And, you know, um, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Or if you're George Bush, shame on you again or, you know, whatever. But, but <laughs> we'll get fooled again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we have to make sure that we're not just falling for this, oh, Kevin McCarthy has suddenly changed. The same dynamics that Kevin McCarthy has been dealing with this whole time are still going to be there. And 
if we have, you know, there are lots of examples of how you can give power to the democratic side or to the other side so that it's a, it's a shared governance. Let's think about what pieces of legislation we want to bring up, control of the committees, those kinds of things. That, I think, is, is uh, important to do. Is that basically saying that if there is this motion to vacate, are we in a world where Democrats are talking about voting for Kevin McCarthy? Or is this a situation where Democrats are just voting present so that they don't need as many votes to keep him? I, I'm trying to understand how what, what this actually looks like. Well, I think if there was some serious, you know, agreement for power sharing, and I think it would be very difficult to convince our members on anything other than something that's codified into the rules. So I just want to be clear about that. Yeah. But um, and I also think, by the way, that there should be uh, there will need to be probably more chaos with the civil war on their side before their members get to a place where they might want to do that. Um, but remember that a present a present vote is essentially taking our vote. It, it's essentially saving McCarthy. And um, that's a very serious thing. I mean, for our members, saving McCarthy means we're signing on to the rest of his agenda forever and ever. And um, as long as he's speaker. And I think that is a very dangerous proposition for Democrats, both now and going into 2024. It's a position I think you must be surprised to find yourself even contemplating. Like on the one hand, no, of course not. This is a person you moments ago referred to as a liar, someone who has pushed some of the most extreme legislation that we've seen in Congress in years, except at the same time, we don't have a majority if there is going to be a speaker, uh, we're not choosing between Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries. Well, it depends. I mean, I think that it depends. You know, if things get bad enough, I've had Republicans say to me, we just want somebody who doesn't lie. And, you know, that could be a Democrat. Now, when I say, well, we've got our speaker, it's Hakeem Jeffries, people are like, oh, you know, well, I don't know if I could go that far to vote for a Democrat. So I'm not saying there's consistency here. But what I am saying is the hope of getting anything that gives Democrats real power is, is going to be difficult and it needs to be codified. That's my belief. Otherwise, I don't think we should save Kevin McCarthy because how can you get worse than Kevin McCarthy? It's not like Kevin McCarthy has bent at every stage to his far right people. The makeup of their body is such that their caucus, that whoever is speaker is going to deal with these same dynamics. And one thing I do think Matt, underst Matt Gates understands is the speaker is never going to be Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's got to be somebody who can be accepted and get the majority of votes in their caucus. And right. um, so that's why uh, I told him that one of the things that I have learned in my seven years here is that you can't run nobody against somebody. Right. And the somebody has to be that you run has to be somebody that's going to be acceptable on your side, because why would we want somebody that's worse than Kevin McCarthy? Hard for me to imagine. But let's say it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates. And so you notice that the names they're coming up with are quite more moderate people like Tom Emmer and uh, uh, Tom Cole. But still, whoever it is, if we don't have it codified into the rules of the House, they will bend to the right of their party, just like Kevin McCarthy did. So we're in this period where we have, uh, what, 45 days until the next potential shutdown. This stopgap kicked a lot of the contentious issues down the road. 
They include funding for Ukraine, this debate about border security. What happens next? Uh, It seems that there was some kind of promise around Ukraine funding to go to this stopgap that didn't include it. What's going to happen uh, in the next six weeks? Well, we have... We have six weeks, and that means we have to get the ultimate government funding bills done. And the bills that the Republicans are putting forward right now are total non-starters in the Senate. I mean, things like a 70% cut in uh, the LIHEAP program, which is heating for, um, you know, for needy residents across the country. Winter is coming. People need that heating. Um, Things like kicking out, you know, uh, tens of thousands of teachers um, out of uh, out of work, just complete non-starters. And so, what we need to do is essentially get to a place where the Senate bipartisan funding appropriations bills all came out of c- committee unanimously. All twelve bills are the bills that we move forward, and those bills do have funding for Ukraine. We have plenty of votes for Ukraine funding from the Dem- all Democrats plus. Um, you know, a good number of Republicans, I think half of their caucus. But the problem is that it, 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 has to, it has to get put up. And I think the best way to do that is to put it within the context of the government funding bills, because um, somebody is going to have to explain if they vote against those, why they voted um, against, you know, keeping the government open or, or funding the military, um, just because they didn't like funding for Ukraine. So to me, that's the best way to do it. And frankly, it's the best thing for our constituents as well, because we won't have people saying, well, you funded Ukraine, but you haven't funded the government for us yet. You haven't funded SNAP, you haven't funded WIC, you haven't funded you know, all the things that are part of um, keeping Americans uh, healthy and, and safe. And so let's, I think they need to be combined And, you know, in an ideal world, the Senate would do this very quickly and get it to us before we get to the next deadline of the shutdown so that once again, we can be clear that there is a bipartisan solution that's passed the Senate and all we have to do is put it on the floor and it would get enough votes. One more question on this. As this is all unfolding, this is going to be in the context of this fight over the speakership. When the far right is reaching out to Democrats, is it because they want to know whether or not Democrats are going to in some way help McCarthy keep the gavel? Or is it because the far right wants Democrats to step aside so that McCarthy loses the gavel? I don't know that there's um, too much of a difference in that at the end of the day, because they they literally, you know, some of them have obviously it's been written about some personal objections to McCarthy. But I do think that one thing that McCarthy did that has really hurt him is he's lied to everybody. I mean, he's lied to the president. He's lied to the far right. He's lied to the moderates. He's lied to everybody. And so that means that he doesn't have the kind of trust he needs for anything he says. And that's why they keep holding things up because they feel like certain commitments were made. And I'm not weighing in on what the, you know, whether that's true or not true, but I've seen it from our side, what he did to Biden, what he's done around Ukraine aid. Um, consistently, he, is, he has lied. And so I don't know that it matters from, from our perspective. I think what matters is we, number one, we do not support 
a speaker who has a right-wing agenda. Number two, we do not, I mean, we have our own candidate. That's Hakeem Jeffries. We took 15 rounds of votes on him. We can take a 16th, a 17th, 18th, 19th if we need to. <laughs> um, but we've got our speaker. What we need is for them to recognize that and to create enough instability or, you know, we're not creating it, they're creating it. But to, but to not feel like we have to step in to save them from their chaos, because at the end of the day, we need to get power for Hakeem Jeffries to be able to have some control over the legislative agenda, over the proceedings of the House. Or, um, you know, as long as we continue to keep the government funded, um, if, if they're unable to move any of their legislation, that's okay with us. All of it's bad. So, you know... I don't think we need to we need to get into why they I have no idea why they I don't I, I'm, I'm not interested enough to be close enough to like <laughs> figure out what their what their rationale is. Is there any part of you late at night that thinks, well, look, McCarthy has doesn't act on principle, something everybody agrees. But here we are. The government's open. We came to the we came to the, within an inch of of default, but we didn't default. And that there's a world in which anyone that replaced McCarthy who would be worse might be in a position even worse than McCarthy was, unable to do what is necessary to prevent us from really crossing the line, from going into more shutdowns, from, from, from the risk of default. I mean, I have um, you know, thought about that over and over again, and we've actually gamed out the scenarios all the way to the end, like multiple scenarios of what could happen. And um, and I feel very confident in saying that the extreme mega right of the Republican Party is governing right now. I mean, we have been relentless as Democrats in fighting back, whether it's on the impeachment, baseless, absurd impeachment of President Biden, whether it's on these extreme cuts that are so cruel that you can't even pass a Department of Defense bill, which is normally bipartisan, even if progressives don't always support it, there's usually enough in the middle to support DOD appropriations. That couldn't even happen this time because they put in a nationwide abortion ban, because they put in a ban on trans kids, because, or, you know, our transgender affirming care, or they put in, uh, you know, they took out all the quote, DEI woke policies, which are really just about teaching about slavery in schools. I mean, it is so extreme that I don't think we can fool ourselves into thinking that somehow McCarthy is this person yeah. and there could be somebody worse. So, I, no, I don't really think that. And I think the only reason, I just want to be clear about this, this keeping the government open was an enormous victory for Democrats because we continued to hold the line. And, you know, last week when we heard about these border provisions that both the Senate and the House including some, quote, Democrats or independents in the Senate, were trying to put in the Progressive Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, the Asian Pacific American Caucus, and the Black Caucus all came out and said, we are not voting for something that has bad immigration, bad border policy. And so once we made that really clear, then it had to get stripped out. We said, we are not voting for things that are not the fiscal 23 cuts. And this is the whole Democratic Caucus. And once that came out, the cuts had to get stripped. And so I think we, and, and we all said we want disaster aid, and we on the Democratic side said we wanted Ukraine aid. Ukraine was the toughest, obviously, but we got 
what we wanted with that one exception of Ukraine, which, by the way, Rand Paul was holding up in the Senate as well. So, you know, I think it, we have held the line consistently, and I think we're going to have to continue to do that no matter who the speaker is. And um, at the end of the day, again, unless we've got some real power sharing and control over the House with Republicans, which is not unheard of. This is not a crazy idea. I mean, the Senate had it last year when they were 50-50. Yes, the Republicans have the majority, but they don't have a governing majority. They can't govern. They're unable to govern. <laughs> so I think you have to look then at the same thing that kind of happens with the coalition government, right? When you have coalition governments in Europe or elsewhere in the world, they have to put together a coalition. And in order to put that together, they have to give something of great significance. And it's usually done through actual rules, not like a, hey, let's, you know, give a pinky swear and, yeah. um, and, and you know, pick, prick our fingers for a little bit of blood. I mean, that's, it's just, we don't trust Kevin McCarthy. We shouldn't. Well, you know what? That, as true today as it has been for the entirety of his speakership, Congresswoman Jaivalf, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to Congresswoman Jayapal for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk to you later hey, this week. I'll throw a question for you, too. Sure. Do you guys think it's weird that we still refer to the Hastert rule, knowing all the rules and laws that he broke in uh, other parts of his life? Maybe we get, um, just get a new term for that. Yeah, no, yeah I mean, sure. The pedophile guy. It's kind of at the bottom of my list of things that annoy me, but it's a weird one. It's well, it's an outro. No, thing, I, you know, know, and I agree. I, know, I, don't, I didn't we say just, let's make it's not an A block. We should pitch. We should pitch, that we should pitch on. Isn't for God's sake? We should pitch on it. How about we pitch on it? Okay, I'm willing. Well, the only reason let's I would say I let, <laughs> the only reason I would say let's keep it is because it should remind people that their caucus is fucked in the head. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But then when we're when we're in charge, we try to use it. We're like, oh, yeah, well, we shouldn't use it anyway. Thanks for bringing that up, Tom. You're welcome. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and David Toledo. Our associate producer is Farah Safari. Writing support from Hallie Kiefer. Reed Churlin is our executive producer. The show is mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Jordan Cantor is our sound engineer with audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Madeline Herringer is our head of news and programming. Matt DeGroat is our head of production. Andy Taft is our executive assistant. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Haley Jones, Mia Kelman, David Tolls, Kirill Pelaviv, and Molly Lobel. Subscribe to Pod Save America on YouTube to catch full episodes and extra video content. Find us at youtube.com slash at Pod Save America. Finally, you can join our Friends of the Pod subscription community for ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and a great discussion on Discord. Plus, it's a great way to get involved with Vote Save America. Sign up at crooked.com slash friends.